When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Jared Keene, who is the author of Hammer of the Dogs. Jared, thanks for being here with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Could you start out by telling us a little bit about what your book's about, giving us a little synopsis about it? My novel, Hammer of the Dogs, is what I call a literary dystopian adventure. It's set in the wasteland of post-apocalyptic Las Vegas, and it stars a 21-year-old protagonist named Lash. She's got a uh, high-tech skill, She's she has a warrior mentality, and she's basically holed up in the bottom of the Luxor Hotel Casino. She's part of a paramilitary cult that's uh, seeking to secure resources for the valley and she's uh momentarily aligned with the uh the cult leader uh, a guy named prof who believes in the cyborg christ or you know a kind of uh uh tech religion uh mishmash of christian theology and you know uh silicon valley uh mania and so um She's pitted against Richter, who's a rival warlord, uh, setting up shop in City Center, another hotel casino on the Strip. Uh, And she's eventually captured by this enemy warlord. And it brings her to a couple of revelations. First, he's not quite the monster her headmaster prof wants her to believe he is. And, um, you know, he's got a different way of uh, securing safety and protection for the um, the survivors in the valley. And so she's got to make some hard decisions and she's got to learn to be wise and learn to mature into the warrior she was always meant to be. And that, uh, you know, that synopsis that I just gave you uh, means I had a hell of a lot of fun writing this thing. So, you know, there's, you know, without doing any kind of spoilers or anything, there's many things I, you know, had questions about. But one of the things is, um, can you talk about the world you built, right? This post-apocalyptic world, um, because we have so many different versions of it. And your version sort of has the government as the ones who are kind of attacking this space. So tell us a little bit about the world that Lash is living in and the space that she's in and in in the United States and what that looks like in your world as opposed to now. 
Right. Well, uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, or Nevada specifically, has always been a military playground, a sandpit for the U.S. government. I mean, they uh, detonated, what, 900 plus uh, nuclear devices here uh, outside of Las Vegas. And this is where all the, the technology testing occurs, you know, Google driverless cars, uh, the last decade or so, you've got Elon Musk running roughshod over this, or I should say under the strip with his uh, boring tunnel projects. You know, he, he thinks he's going to alleviate traffic uh, on the strip with, uh, you know, more cars under the strip. And um, basically people uh, with the help of the government have free reign to, um, you know, test out all their uh, wicked technology. And we're seeing uh, that technology you know, in full display in places like Ukraine. Uh, but really, the, the, the origin for this novel uh, came to me before I was even a professor. I'm, I'm talking like 10 years ago when I was working as a communications um, director at Mandalay Bay uh, Hotel Casino here on the Strip. I found that my employee badge allowed me to sneak around and, um, uh, you know, uh, basically spy on conventions that gathered here. We're, we're talking a million plus feet of convention space at, at Mandalay Bay. And one convention that kept re returning to Las Vegas is the uh, the Drone Tech Convention. And I was absolutely horrified and in awe of the technology that was on display, the, the military grade weapons. And it was at this you know, returning convention year after year that I saw what I would call the, uh, you know, the synergy between um, the, you know, the, the military industrial complex, higher education. There were so many engineering departments from various universities uh, here, young people uh, building drones, um, law enforcement, and of course, um, you know, uh, tech companies, all of them, oh, and foreign governments, I should ask, you know, basically using this convention as an opportunity, a shopping spree to select what kind of weapons they were going to use to pacify their own um, citizenry or to, you know, to use against, to wield against other nations. So this was a real eye opener for me. And I started collecting, gathering these brochures, <laughs> catalogs, industry magazines and this is uh easily 10 years ago and i held on to those um texts and i used them to build the world that lash inhabits in many ways hammer of the dogs is, is a kind of retro future shock it's uh all the technology on display in my novel is stuff that um was cutting edge maybe a decade ago uh it's much more lethal much more um, sinister uh today but I had a lot of fun, you know, um, working in that that milieu. In many ways, I think Hammer of the Dogs occurs, you know, just after the Obama presidency. And um, that made it a lot of fun to write as well, because <laughs> I got to, in some ways, create an alternate future history, one in which Vegas and the and, and the United States is, is ruined by um, a kind of collapse that I keep vague intentionally. You know, I, I wanted to let the reader use their imagination to, to fill in the blanks. But um, yeah, the, the world building is all uh, based on 
you know, my experience behind the scenes, if you will, uh, back of house, Las Vegas, the the structures behind the structures, uh, which my job as a communication specialist for the casinos allowed me to to see. And then, of course, the, this uh, the history of Nevada as a place where the U.S. government tests all its worst ideas. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I never really, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not from that area, so I've never really spent a lot of time there. But in reading, I was thinking, like, this is a really great space to have underground layers, to mm-hmm. be able to, like, like thinking about, like, I often think about, like, uninhabited malls, but uninhabited casinos are huge, right? Yes. Like, there's so many different, because there's not only, like, the casino floor, but there's also hotels usually connected to them. You know, there's all of that. So um, it was really neat to see how you kind of rethought or restructured or repurposed, maybe that's the word I want, these spaces that we normally use for entertainment, right? And I, I put it all in there, the employee dining rooms, the uh, the loading docks, the uh, at Luxor, you know, the giant sky beam. Um, I, 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 I just, I, I, that's exactly what I did. I repurposed it for the, uh, for an adventure uh, novel scenario. Yeah. And I, like you said, uh, it was hard to pinpoint the time that this took place, right? Mm-hmm. There was a lot of reference um, to things that are happening now or we're not very far in the past. So it's very, has this very be, much a feeling of being something that could at any point in time happen, right? We could end up in this space very quickly and easily. Well, the pandemic really put things into perspective for me and galvanized me to finally send the manuscript out. Uh, you know, that moment where I'm on my bicycle my family is with me, my sons and my wife were on our bicycles and we're pedaling down the empty strip, no pedestrians, no cars, there's no planes in the sky, um, there's just, you know, emptiness. There's so, there are a few other bicyclists, uh, you know, in front of us, behind us, but overall it was just a, a staggering moment to see the Las Vegas Strip uh, once bustling and vibrant, you know, shut down, uh, quiet, dormant. And um, that was really that moment that, that that pushed me to, you know, put the finishing touches on the book and, and send it out to um, the small presses, the indie presses. I couldn't get any traction in, in New York with uh, literary agents. Um, I didn't imagine that I would have much uh, success either in the, uh, in the um, uh, university press world, but um, uh, lo and behold, you know, University of Nevada Press read it, uh, loved it, uh, reached out to me, and I'm just uh, thrilled to have it out and presenting a different view of Las Vegas, one that's never been presented before. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the other things, so we've got this, you know, Vegas and space and, and, and another thing that happens is there's a lot of young people involved, like in part yes. of your world, this is a world that, um, I think there's at one point you said it, you're lucky if you make it to 50 kind of world, yes. right? Um, and often I think Las Vegas is not thought of as a, as a place of children, right? It's thought of as this place of, um, you know, that an adult playground. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit about that, um, like creating this space or having these young people and how they are. I was interested in like how you're, they're being educated or not educated in this space. So can you talk about um, that sort of like the use of children? I mean, some of the, some of them are very much what we would consider children, right? In this time. 
Well, I have a lot to say about that, but uh, I'll, what I'll what I'll say right away is that you know these characters, these young characters, are based on my students here at UNLV, who have a very blue collar uh, upbringing and perspective. Um, their CVs at age eighteen, nineteen are so much more advanced than mine was at their age. I mean, they've worked valet, they've worked at uh, lifeguards on the strip. Um, they've um, basically worked either on the strip or adjacent to it. And it's caused them to grow up, you might say, really quickly. And they've seen things that um, young people probably shouldn't have to see. They've seen um, uh, tourist people overdose in the, uh, in the pools. Uh, they've seen, um, you know, the, um, the suicides, tourists jumping off the parking garages after a, a, you know, unlucky streak at the tables. And they've really just, um, had to grow up really fast and they wouldn't say it, but I'll say it, I'll, I'll go ahead and say it for them. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they suffer a bit of PTSD from these experiences. They've had to grow, they've had to act like grownups, um, in an environment that is very adult-oriented and, let's just face it, very um, severe. And I admire them for that. I admire their tenacity and their love for each other. And I wanted to acknowledge that and pay tribute to that with my characters, particularly Lash, who is the, um, the protagonist, the hero of the novel, who's had a, a rough go of it uh, even before the collapse. You know, her, her mother has died of cancer. And um, uh, when the catastrophe happens, her father abandons her to uh, rush uh, towards the strip and try to save people who are not her. And this is a, a wound that um, she cannot heal. And it kind of motivates her in many ways uh, on one level for revenge. But on another level, she, uh, she wants uh, a family that she can trust. And she doesn't know anyone she can trust in this kind of world. Um, but, uh, you know, I've got another thing to say <laughs> about young people uh, in my novel. You know, there was a moment in, in time, specifically the 80s in cinema, where young people were the heroes of their own stories. I'm talking about the great cinematic masterworks. And I'm not, this is not tongue in cheek. I'm talking about Goonies, Gremlins. Red Dawn, uh, Solar Babies, um, you know, the list goes on. You could argue, you know, Empire Strikes Back. You know, young people put in extraordinary stressful situations and they have to um, rise to the occasion. And I love these stories as a child of the 80s. They really made an impression on me. And I see some of that in today's YA literature, but um, to be frank with you, and maybe this will get edited out, um, you know, I, I wrote a YA novel for people who hate YA, you know, who do see it as kind of um, maybe a little too uh, meek and a little too correct. And I wanted to um, balance that out a little bit by dipping back into the past and letting Lash uh, loose in the candy shop which, um, you know, involves uh, weapons, you know, why should the uh, U.S. government be the ones to the military industrial complex be the ones to have all the um, have all the toys, you know, you're not going to overthrow or, uh, or resist anything with, um, you know, whatever this thing is, uh, social media or whatever, <laughs> the internet, you're gonna have to fight at some point. And I wanted to, uh, 
go back to maybe even to the origins of YA, you know, like Stephen King's uh, The Long Walk or um, even uh, Battle Royale, the novel that uh, preceded Hunger Games. And for, for many people, many people view uh, Battle Royale as kind of the uh, the source material for, for Hunger Games. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to create something a little harder edge, a little more aggressive, but at the same time, pay homage to those great uh, women warriors that I grew up um, watching. I'm talking about, you know, Ellen Ripley from um, Alien and um, Sarah Connor from Terminator. You can even put Sarah Williams in there from Labyrinth. You know, these are the movies that that moved me, that touched me, that made me uh, think about life as full of heroic possibilities. And I wanted to get out of the grungy, um, you know, paranoid, everybody dies at the end uh, way of telling a story. I wanted there to be that moment at the end of the novel where you, uh, you know, where the good guys win and you and you cheer and you pump your fist and you're like, yeah, that was, that rocked. That's what, <laughs> so that was, uh, that's what I wanted to, to say about young people is I wanted to give them a chance to be real heroes and not uh, complete and total victims, which I, I really can't stand. So, you know, as you were talking, one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about, and you brought up sort of the 80s and you brought up some of those movies, but you also have a large reference to music, right, yes. throughout this. So can you talk a little bit about that and your references to music and kind of your choices with that and your um, choices with the the music you chose and why? <laughs> well, the music uh, was not chosen by me. The music was <laughs> pushed on me by the protagonist, uh, Lash, you know. Um, I never listened to the music that she enjoys in the in the book. You know, I was not a Motley Crue, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden fan. I was more of a goth kid. You know, I, I preferred, I don't know, Sisters of Mercy, Joy Division, The Smiths, The Cure. You know, that that was my, those were my jams. But she wouldn't let me push any of that music uh, into her story. Uh, it's going to sound a little weird, but she, you know, my character really kind of guided me uh, through the book, and she said her dead dad uh loved 80s you know glam metal hard rock and so that's what we were going to listen to <laughs> so i played you know a lot of, i mean, I played some harder stuff to like slayer and and uh of course um you know metallica stuff like that but she really wanted me to put away that emo stuff and do and do something different so i had to like I don't know how to explain this, but I had to expand my musical tastes to a degree to accommodate my character and to get the soundtrack that she needed to hear as we were working our way through this uh, adventure story. Sounds a little metaphysical, but um, I don't know, know any other way of explaining it. Um, Lash took over the book and I, I did not stage manage her or orchestrate uh, anything. Uh, she pushed me along, if, if anything. Yeah, so she was one of my questions. Um, you know, I often want to know if if she was there from the beginning. Like, was this story the story you wanted to tell, or she wanted to tell from the beginning, or uh, did you come at did, did this take different forms until you got to where you're at right now? When I started, I wanted to be pretentious. You know, I wanted to write a a warning about drone technology, and it was you know I wanted to be literary. And I was going to do all these noble literary, you know, things and people were going to love me for my writing and my philosophies and my theories and all my, you know, my BS. And so 
but this image kept coming into my brain, you know, uh, a young woman with a rock smashing a, a window uh, of a empty suburban tract home so she could escape a drone that was about to shoot her. And it took off from there. And uh, she took over from there. And then all of that crap that I had set out to do, you know, uh, went out the window. I threw all that, the, that stuff away, all those notes that I had. You know, I was reading deeply into the philosophy of drone technology and and the singularity and all of that got got pushed aside because, um, you know, Lash wanted me to tell her story and not, you know, show off and be pretentious because uh, there's plenty of books that do that. I mean, they're published every minute. So uh, I wrote a story instead of uh, a novel, I feel. That's why I call it a literary dystopian adventure. You know, it, <laughs> I put literary in there. It's mainly an adventure. Uh, that I've what that's what I've done here well and one of the things you do that I thought was really interesting um and that is part of her in the book is this connection to religion right we often think of the dystopia and it either becomes this very much and you mentioned sort of the sort of cult leader or it becomes a very anti-religion and do you have a bit of a it's a little more complex and so can you talk a bit about that and um how you saw religion playing out um for lash and for your book well lash is herself a you know what she would call a true catholic or an old school you know christian um the the idea for the cyborg christ religion that motivates prof you know her uh, at the at the moment uh, headmaster was just taken directly from my interactions with the uh, tech community at these drone conventions you know 10 years ago they were even talking about you know what if we're what if we're being managed by artificial intelligence you know they were just coming up with different ways of discussing god and claiming to be atheists and it it seemed really ridiculous to me and uh you know their obsession and and then you know this is not this is me interviewing people like on the strip in 2012 or it's like they were talking about uploading their consciousness into a, you know, a cloud or a computer. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. It was outlandish. It was cult-like and deeply, deeply religious, even though they claim to be atheists. It's just, uh, you know, Lash says it best, you know, the, the, um, the, the tech atheists that bring about the collapse are, you know, they're just as, they have just as much uh, religious, fervor as any you know uh evangelical uh, uh christian so i i wanted to you know highlight that but it also made a really compelling uh piece of of, of this of this world you know that she's inhabited i could the luxor itself is in a, an egyptian you know pagan tomb <laughs> the pyramid structure the black pyramid in the middle of the of the strip it just seems so eerie and and creepy and why wouldn't a uh uh um you know a tech atheist warlord set up shop there and and you know control drones and um protect the valley that 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 to me um somehow made sense or made sense to lash <laughs> so that's what uh that's what happened there and i had a whole lot of fun um uh doing doing that stuff uh creating that cyborg christ uh religion and pitting that religion against uh the more um uh, old school atheist stylings of Richter, who um, believes that there is no singularity, that drones are in fact just tools that amplify our, you know, desires, our our wickedness, 
and she doesn't know which to choose from really you know she doesn't she doesn't have a, a clear path to her own vision of the world she has to forge it on her own with her own sweat and and blood and tears one of the other things i thought was interesting is that we often have um in sort of dystopians or pieces like this there's this you're the protagonist or your main character is often really at war with someone else um like her like she's at war with someone else who's supposed to be part of her clan i don't know the best way to say it but you have created this world where um there are there are certain people she might have little antagonism for but they're very much creating a family and a community, right? Yes. In these ways that um, we don't often see, right? So can you talk a little bit about that, if that was something you really wanted to do or if it just came to be that way, but sort of her relationship and her relationship with these, I love the the younger girls that you have in yes. here and that kind of thing. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, that's just based on, you know, <laughs> growing up myself in uh, in high school and you know you find yourself uh in in minor conflicts with people who are you know essentially on your side and well actually we see it today in our in our workplaces and our you know our work environments um sometimes you know you don't get along all the time especially if you have a very strict view the uncompromising perspective but ultimately um you're bonded with people who with whom you go through a uh, a tragedy or, or trauma and that uh, can bring you together. And so uh, Lash has to realize that, you know, initially she starts out really much butting heads with everyone who loves her. Um, and I see that a lot in um, in people, you know, they they just don't want to be loved and they can't, um, they can't do it and they have to work through something. Uh, and we all do, I'm not, not, I'm saying they, but maybe I'm really probably talking about myself. Uh, you know, you have to, allow yourself to be loved and, and, you know, forgive yourself and try to understand that not everything is your fault and you don't have to blame others for every setback or, or challenge. And I wanted lashed. And I think she does go through that process. So by the end of the book, you know, she realizes that the community she needed all along was right there. Um, and inside the Luxor, she just needed to get, push a few people aside who weren't uh who were maybe let's just say a little overzealous in their desire for leadership <laughs> and uh i think that's uh what's really uh beautiful about the end of the book is not just that the good guys win but that lash has realized that you know the younger people they're not all rivals they're not always trying to snipe at her sabotage her that, uh, you know, there are some people who want to help her and she, by reaching out to them as the novel progresses, she creates a community, a world, a family that she can cling to for safety and security and, 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 and they to her. So I have to ask you, I don't think this is really a spoiler or anything, but, um, what's the deal with your um, problem with flamingos? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that goes back to my... (laughs) days at uh, Florida State University, which is where I uh, got my PhD in creative writing. I'd, I'd go on the St. Mark's Trail. And for uh, for many months, maybe maybe years, there was uh, uh, emus, you know, like those uh, ostrich-like birds that were tall and aggressive. And they were like, um, <clears throat> they were very aggressive. They would come running at you <laughs> and you'd have to run away or, you know, square you know post up square up i never squared up with an emu because they're scary i don't know if you know what i'm talking about they're a wild looking fierce looking animal 
<clears throat> and so um, that was in my head. Um, but also the flamingo is such a iconic symbol for Las Vegas. Uh, there was a flamingo hotel. If there's a flamingo hotel here, of course. And um, uh, I was also borrowing a bit from the end of Sheena um, that uh, uh, Tanya Roberts vehicle you know jungle adventure movie from the 80s i don't know if you remember the finale of it but she telepathically summons a a a a squadron of uh pink flamingos to take down a uh you know (laughs) helicopter (laughs) with the bad guy in it (laughs) so um and i also stole a little bit from thomas harris's novel hannibal which has of course the uh carnet what is it flesh-eating pigs um, I don't know if you remember <laughs> ridiculous, but I, I wanted to keep pushing the novel to the, to its limits. You know, I wanted to be, I wanted to walk up to the line of absurdity and just maybe, you know, dip my toe <laughs> over there, or at least Lash was urging me to have mm-hmm. as much, as much fun as possible. That's sort of a wink, wink to the, to the reader, you know, that, uh, at that point, my tongue is in my cheek and I'm, I'm having fun and enjoying the, uh, the process and hopefully having enough fun that they're the readers uh, is enjoying themselves as well. Yeah. I, I like the flamingos. It was very entertaining. <laughs> well, people keep asking me that. What did a flamingo ever do? To you? Just, I don't know. I just thought it was, it was the only way to, to take a novel set in post-apocalyptic uh, Las Vegas. You know, why not throw in the carnivorous flying uh, pink death machines? <laughs> It's you know when we start seeing those, then we know the world is ending and we're good to right. go. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the title too and your choice of the title, Hammer of the Dogs? Well, it sounds really cool. That was the first thing I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, was it Poe who said that? Sound what the way sound first, meaning second. Um, no, I mean uh, I grew up uh, enamored with this rock biography of the band led zeppelin it was called hammer of the gods it's a it's a, a lyric in their uh one of their tunes i think immigrant song and uh i don't know if you remember this book but you know when it showed up in the pillbox library in downtown tampa uh hammer of the gods i'm talking about i uh i read it and just was amazed you know these uh wild uh gods of rock and roll just you know going nuts every you know trashing hotel rooms just misbehaving they were like a feral gang and i wanted to uh i mean i don't condone any of that behavior but i i thought it was interesting that you know there was uh, a book out there that almost celebrated the you know ramshackle intensity of this uh, of these four guys from from england and i i wanted to to capture some of that uh adolescent uh, rage you know that, that kind of um um, you know, young people who are maybe not in complete control of themselves and uh, the things could go wrong at any moment. Um, that I, I miss that in um, in writing today, especially in, in rock biographies, rock criticism. Um, and I, I wanted to bring that intensity into into the uh, YA adventure uh, format. I was thinking about other books that I read in tandem with uh, Hammer of the Gods that Led Zeppelin bio. I'm talking about, of course, you know, uh, Stephen King's Firestarter and and, uh, and books like that, that really, to me, you know, Firestarter is a, is a YA book, um, young, young protagonist. And of course, uh, there's, 
a big reveal at the end of my novel hammer of the dogs where i'm paying homage to uh to carrie to <laughs> to stephen king's young uh female protagonist i wish he'd go back to that actually uh, he sort of put that aside but um yeah so the title has a, a couple different me also you know lash believes she's a a dog soldier of for christ you know she wants she says at one point before she blows uh, a mercenary away that you know make me your hammer god i want to i want to be useful to you i want to be your instrument of terror and um so it's a little bit of solomon kane you know robert e howard's uh, creation and or the puritan uh adventurer um i just wanted to create a, re- a deeply flawed uh protagonist that would uh, get it together, and by the end of the book, you're you realize uh, there's hope. You know, you're uh, she's not lost. All is not lost. We're not lost. There's redemption is possible, and, and um, that's that's really what I was uh, out to do with that with that title and with that with this character. So I'm hoping you can maybe read a little bit for us um, from sure. your novel and share a, a little bit from Hammer of the Dogs. Absolutely, I'll just start with the. Just a little bit from the uh, the first chapter. Lash used a rock to smash the window of a vacant tract home. Before climbing in, she looked to see if the micro drone had followed. It careened from the front of the house, the pilot overcorrecting, the machine glancing off the brick facade. It was a nasty homebrew with a thermal imaging camera and what looked like an SRS A2, the world's smallest sniper rifle. The four brushless motors had no gears making it a quiet, efficient, nearly inescapable killer. She knew the hushed rotor wash would be imperceptible, even inches from her face. But Lash didn't hear drones. She intuited them. Drones changed the atmosphere around her. She was drawn to them, repulsed by them. For the briefest moment, her adversary had her mesmerized. Then the bucket of bits and chips steadied itself to draw a deadly bead. She jumped through the window. A shard of glass sliced her forearm. A bullet ripped through the window inches from her face. She yelped, fell backward onto a floor of broken dishes and garbage, then scampered out of the kitchen and got up to sprint for the door. In the tiled living room, she slipped on something greasy and landed on her tailbone. Shockwaves of pain racking her spine, she got up and ran again. Still, she felt her stalker ghosting the air growing closer. She was outside now. The longer she avoided death, the sooner the drone would exhaust its power supply and have to return to base station or risk crashing. But she had no idea where that station might be. The pilot, Richter, could be anywhere, orchestrating her demise with a suitcase downlink powered by an old car battery. He could be across the street right now, ready to blow her brains out with an AK, SKS, or even an old Remington. She took the chance, lungs burning, legs throbbing, She made for the narrow space between two houses. She hoped to find a skateboard or kick scooter, anything to get her downhill fast and out of the suburban maze. She'd been searching for paint thinner. She was building a flamethrower and had needed fuel that stayed liquid as it burned. She'd fantasized all year about incinerating Richter's cruel and handsome face. Gunfire cracked, shattering a garden gnome. She bounded a wooden backyard fence and spotted shears beside a drained swimming pool. She grabbed the landscaping tool just as the micro-drone whirred up behind her. Swinging the shears, she pinched the machine by its landing skid, using its momentum to bounce it once, twice, off the sliding glass door. The drone sputtered free, bobbing like a storm-tossed fishing cork, and fired. 
A giant spiderweb fracture erupted behind Lash with her black Bedford lace-up combat boots. She kicked her way in and headed for the garage. She whimpered a prayer to St. Joseph of Cupertino, patron of pilots, for help against her assailant. But Richter was relentless. Nothing could save her now. If only she had a GPS jammer, something to spoof the drone into autopilot. All she had were fields of dead grass, dust, and abandoned homes. The overhead garage door was locked. She ducked into the laundry room and, noticing a can of lighter fluid, smiled with pyromaniacal intent. She opened a refrigerator, got in and closed the door, fumbling in her cargo shorts for the Zippo. She listened for the drone, sensed it nearby. It was searching for a heat signal. She would give it one. She swung open the fridge door. It clipped one of the drone's rotors, which sent it spinning out into the hallway. As it thrashed, fighting to achieve liftoff, she drenched it with lighter fluid, then flicked her Zippo, tossed it, and squirted more fluid onto the flaming bot. Desperate to kill, the drone fired. Melting carbon caused the bullet to miss and ricochet into a box of cat litter. Lash took the opportunity to whack the machine with a broom handle. Billowing smoke inside the cramped space made it hard to breathe. She slid open the lone window, leaped into the backyard again, and hauled, never looking back. She ran down the hill until she reached the gated entrance, wrought iron warped, where her bike was waiting. Hanging from the handlebars was her backpack, which contained her command tablet. She unzipped the backpack first and checked the tablet, hoping to snag a nearby academy drone, but Richter's pulse waves blocked her signal. She hopped on the trek, pedaling furiously along crumbling pothole-pocked Valley View Boulevard. Richter loved using multiple drones to play with and prey upon his victims. Right now, the skies were bright, cloudless, empty of marauders. She let herself believe she'd escaped the crosshairs, a rare feat. Only one other academy student cut off from his classmates had ever survived an ambush by Richter, and that kid had a GPS jammer. Having relied on her wits, instinct, and animal-like desire to live, Lash would fight another day. She wouldn't admit it to her classmates. She would tell them God had saved her. Not because it was true, but being caught out in the open without tech was looked down on at the academy. At the academy, students were asked to bond with the machine, even at the risk of dying. Thank you so much. So I'm going to ask you my final question, as I always do. Um, so uh, the novel's out now, right? Yes. Um, is there anything either that you're working on now that you want to talk about or any promotion with the novel? So what's going on? Self-promotion. Go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am writing a, uh, a series of YA Westerns that I hope to have out uh, in time for uh, late summer or this fall or fall of next year. So I'm very excited to be working in a, uh, a forgotten, you might say uh, withering <laughs> genre, but I don't know. I think it's due for rediscovery, you know, with the success of Yellowstone and, um, and uh, you know, Western uh, series like that. Uh, what's that other one? Justify. You know, I feel like it, uh, the YA angle might be interesting. I think there are in fact, a lot of young readers, young people you know, who love books and love horses and love being outdoors and love being outside. And so I'm sort of uh, aiming for that market market with this Western series that I'm currently working on. And um, again, it features a, a young protagonist. And uh, do you know, do you remember those, those movies that, that would come out like young guns and stuff like that? 
Oh yes. Oh yes. John bon Jovi. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to dip my head to that. Uh, maybe justly forgotten, but I, I never. No, those movies should never be forgotten. <laughs> I, had a, I had a lot of fun watching the movie, and even the uh, you know uh, movies like Silverado and uh, some of the other '80s westerns. Uh, I enjoyed the heck out of those, and uh, I wanted to try something in that style, you might say, with a different soundtrack. But I, I really, I really love the the western as not just a novel, but as a you know, I love uh, movies about the the Wild West, the Old West. I think they're a lot of fun, and uh, it's kind of interesting in the year twenty twenty three to to try uh, to attempt something, uh, you know, given how the world is is so different. Uh, and I think I can do it. I think I can make it interesting for young readers and, and make them, uh, you know, believe, believe in the possibility of, uh, you know, again, of the, of the rugged individual, uh, who's also, you might say, uh, kind and compassionate and has a, has his, his, their heart in the right place. That's what I'm after. Well, Jared, thanks for talking with me again, Jared Keen, author of Hammer of the Dogs. Thanks for talking with me on New Books Network. This was so much fun. Let's do it again soon. <laughs> yes. <laughs>